This is a replacement release of episode 12. Yunas and Finland let us know that on the initial release of this episode, the left-right balance of the voices had been improperly mixed in the first segment. We're not sure how that happened, but this release corrects that problem. Initializing You are listening to Intellectual Icebergs, May 9th, 2006, show number 12. Today's topics are relationship maintenance and stellar life cycles. For comments or questions, you can email us at comments at intellectualicebergs.org, you can Skype us at intice, or you can IM us at int underscore ice on Yahoo or intellectualice, all one word, on AIM. Welcome back to Intellectual Icebergs. This is Tiffany. And this is Rob. And we're doing, oh yes... Another dun-dun-dun couples cast. We're so sorry. But we both have a lot of input into this topic. So we figured it would be best if we both just sat here rather than one of us paraphrase the other person. Yep. So today's topic is actually relationship tips for geeks. And this is based on a request that we received from one of our listeners, Frank... And Frank writes in, Your geek dating tips are all about meeting and greeting. I realize that it may be your target audience. Well, I got through that part, and for some reason she actually married me. Well, two kids later, I need reminders on relationship maintenance. So that's what this segment is about, relationship maintenance. And Frank, we'd like to thank you for this suggestion. And we'd also like to tell all of our listeners that we will, in fact, be getting back to the geek dating tips, more flirting, all of that. It's just that it was taking me so long to get through this part that we're kind of racing ahead and then we'll backtrack. There's just a heaping pile of material on that. And, well, instead of giving it to you all in one long, drawn-out chunk, we're going to kind of cut it up a bit and intersplice it with stuff like this. Right. So all of you who have been patiently waiting for the relationship tips, you got past the flirting and the dating and got somebody to marry you or you're in a relationship, this is for you. Or if you'd just like to get there someday. Right. Well, more specifically, this is for people who have reached the hump. A technical term, or not. The hump. (laughs) And no, we're not talking about sex. The hump is a part of a relationship where your personal focus starts to shift from learning about the other person to living life with that other person. And just to be clear, this is a term we're using. This may or may not be what everybody else calls it, but it should be a term that you would find. There's probably a term out there somewhere, and if someone knows what it is, please write it and tell us, because until then, we're just going to call it the hump. The hump. We didn't find the term, so we're using the hump. So... Here's how to tell whether or not you've hit the hump. Before we get into this, I do want to state that you should not look for the hump. If you're in a relationship, especially an early relationship, looking for the hump will bring it on earlier. And what happens then is you lose part of the romantic part of the relationship, that which is intense infatuation and thrill. At the beginning of a relationship. Which is important, not just because it's fun, but also because it's the time when you're getting to know the other person, and that's definitely not a time you want to cut short. Once you hit the hump, which is a gradual process, it doesn't happen all at once, you start to see a couple of things happen. First of all, that very intense romantic focus that you had on the other person, it starts to dissipate, and you begin to refocus your attention on other aspects of your life. Now, this is a healthy thing, but it does have an impact on your relationship. Right. Instead of asking, I wonder if he or she would like to do this, you start thinking, I want to do this. I wonder if he or she would want to join me. And this is also when you're going to find yourself possibly taking the other person for granted, and also when you realize that you no longer find all of their habits endearing. All those idiosyncrasies might start to become annoying habits, or at least some of them. No shortage of that going on. Another useful way of telling, everybody has seen people who've gotten into a relationship and then you never see them again. They vanish. They just go hide away in their own little world and get to know each other for a while. And then they start hanging out with their friends again. That means they've hit the hump. Right, because thoughts of the other person, focus on the other person, has become far less all-consuming. Right. We get our friends back. Yay! (laughs) It's also at this stage that a couple begins to both formally and informally negotiate the priorities in their life as a couple. Right, and that's an extremely important point. It's the actual function of the hump is learning how to live together as opposed to learning about each other. You've reached the point where you've learned all of the fascinating and wonderful things about them, and now you're learning the rest of it. 
This segment is about how to better manage the hump and improve your relationship during that period and beyond it. And so our assumptions, or this segment is for you if... If you are in a relationship with someone and you are in or over the hump, as we described it... And this could be four months into your relationship or 20 years. In my personal experience, it can happen as early as a month and as late as two, three, four years. Another of the assumptions is that you still like, love, and respect the other person. That's true. If you can't stand them, don't stick around. You're not doing anyone a favor. And it also goes without saying that you're actually interested in maintaining your current closeness or improving upon the closeness in your relationship. Or it could also be that you'd like to be in a position to use this information in the future, near or far. Right. So the big question, we have reached the hump. What do we do now? Well, okay, the first thing, going back to what we said about all those cute little idiosyncrasies suddenly becoming annoying, learn to take the good with the bad. Remember, this is the wonderful person who you fell in love with. And at that time, these didn't seem so problematic. Figure out why they're so problematic now and either communicate with them about this or get over it. One of the things about another person's behavior is that you cannot change their behavior. They must change themselves. So it does absolutely no good for you to be perpetually annoyed about these anyway. That's right. You can't change the other person. You can ask the other person to change for you, but don't assume that they're going to. Usually any form of change involves an amount of negotiation. But for the most part, this is who the person is. This is the one you fell in love with. And like Super Chicken said, you knew the job was dangerous when you took it. Another major tip that we'd like to offer is that you need to try to recognize and work through any negative interaction patterns you've established between you. Now this is a big one because it basically involves learning how to argue fairly. Most people may think that they argue fairly, but there was a study about meta skills, skills that you use to learn other skills, and it turns out that most people think that they're better than average. And if you know anything about statistics, you know that it's impossible for most people to be better than average. And arguing fairly is no exception to this. Chances are that you're performing at least one of these behaviors. And so just to run down a list of the unfair fighting practices, one of the first ones is name calling. Then there's Rob's favorite. Passive aggression. And I say not that because he's passive aggressive, because he's the least passive aggressive person I know at this point in time. And one of the reasons I'm one of the least passive aggressive people that she knows is because I have dated oodles and oodles of passive aggressive women. (laughs) Yes. And had passive aggressive friends and probably still have passive aggressive friends. Who knows? And if you happen to be in a relationship with someone who doesn't dig in their heels, I suggest you look it up and learn all about it. Also on the list. Ineffective and untimely communication. This is letting problems fester until a blow-up. That (laughs) blow-up usually happens at an inopportune moment, in front of other people, in line at the movie theater. When you're angry about something else completely unrelated. It's really bad to let this stuff sit because it's like not doing plumbing maintenance. It's going to go bad at the worst possible time. (laughs) And in a big way. That's right. Another important one is unfounded accusations. I had a girl who I proposed to. I was planning on marrying her. She told people later that I slept with someone the very night that I proposed to her. That kind of put a serious damper on the relationship. Well, and sometimes people will accuse you of something when they have no evidence. They're just trying to find out if you're engaging in that behavior. And so this is another form of crying wolf. It's an unfounded accusation that definitely causes a rift in your trust. Another one is not owning your own emotions and reactions. In other words, externalizing your emotion. For example, saying to the other person, you make me angry. Someone doesn't make you angry. You own your own emotions and you are responsible for the reaction that you have. You may instead and should instead say to somebody, when you do that, I become angry or I feel angry. And that's taking ownership or internalizing your emotions. Another good example is with bad finances. You spend a little money, they spend a little money, but it's their spending of the money that's the problem. Right. Another Another one of Rob's favorites. Oh, yes. The silent treatment. I used to be really guilty of this. This is one of those things when you're angry, take a little time to figure out what exactly you're angry about, but don't shut the other person out. That's called emotional blackmail. It is. And it's very difficult for someone who, especially for someone who requires a lot of communication and feedback. And a lot of people are that way. Right. 
And another one that women are notorious for, bringing up past resolved arguments when they're not relevant to whatever's currently going on. But you did lose my Arcanum files. I did lose your Arcanum files, but losing files has nothing to do with replacing a motherboard. (laughs) Don't even ask. You don't even want to know. Another unfair fighting practice is involving other people in your fights. And this is bad all the way around because other people often do not want to be included in your fights. It it's makes them uncomfortable. It's unfair to them. It's unfair to your partner. And quite honestly, the other people aren't going to be able to do anything for you anyway. And you risk putting them in such a bad situation. And I, I can't tell you how many times I've been in that situation where a girlfriend says to me, that guy, he's such a jerk. He did such and such. And I'm like, dude, I've never liked him from the beginning. He's a total asshole, blah, blah, blah. And guess what? When they make up in three hours, I'm the total asshole. So this is a bad situation. Don't engage your friends. Absolutely. Or your family. Another bad one is evasive arguing habits. Or switching the subject. If you're arguing about your mother coming in from out of town, don't change it to the other person being a slob. That's not what the argument's about. Stick to the actual problem at hand. Another one is hitting below the belt, and this is attacking or exploiting the other person's weaknesses. This is just never nice. Remember you love this person, and don't do that. That's right. You just want to buy a new car because you have a small penis. Bad idea. Bad idea. Next one's kind of sort of not necessarily a bad arguing habit. It sort of goes under the heading of silent treatment. Well, or of not working towards resolution. Not working towards resolution. And remember, you're in a relationship, you care about each other, you should be working towards resolution. Right. Don't part with the other person while angry. Don't run out, get in the car, drive away. Don't go to bed angry and make them sleep on the couch. Don't go to work angry. At least come to some sort of understanding that you'll work it out when you get back together. That's right. You may not have time to fix the problem right then, but make sure the person knows that you still care about them. And one of the pieces of advice that I found on one of the websites I was looking at, and I will include links to this part of the segment, is... They recommend that at the end that you basically hold the other person's hands and that you look into their eyes, you make this contact, and you let them know you still care about them. You may not be able to ever agree on the topic. You may, in fact, have to agree to disagree, but you need to still give them the positive physical contact and eye contact to let them know that you still love them. You don't love the problem, but you love them. And this all gets back to the very important point of emotional blackmail. Do not use your relationship as a bargaining chip. This whole thing where if you don't do what I say, I'm going to leave you, I'm going to go live with mother, I'm moving out, I'm not going to sleep with you, I'm going to walk away from you, I won't talk to you for two days, whatever, is blackmail against that person's affection for you. If you do this, you're basically stating that your emotions are a point of negotiation for you. You become a person of negotiable virtue, among other things. But for the most part, no matter what happens, you're going to hurt that other person, and then you both lose. So that summarizes a lot of the things that people will do when they fight unfairly. But if you or your partner are engaging in these, and as Rob said, chances are you're probably engaging in one of them to some extent or another. If it is a problem in your relationship, you do need to learn how to fight fairly. And there are plenty of websites, books, therapists, relationship experts, a lot of people to help you learn how to fight fairly with each other. And the other great thing about this, about learning what your particular techniques are, which unfair fighting practices you engage in, is that once you learn how to fight fairly, this is something you can apply to all of your relationships, work relationships, friendships, family, all of it. Oh, this is so true. Mothers are notorious for being passive aggressive. Hey, (laughs) ripping the moms. (laughs) Hi, mom. We don't want any hate mail for ripping the moms. It's actually passive aggression is is a fairly large category and it's something that a lot of people engage in. And and even when you fight it, you still will catch yourself if it's something you've done in the past. In addition to learning how to fight fairly, we're going to recommend that you identify, communicate, and work through all of your built-up resentment about habits, mannerisms, characteristics, activities, or problems the other person has. And this is a big one, especially for older relationships, because you just layer this stuff on over the years. And they become sore points where even bringing it up at all can cause a horrible blow up between you two. 
And this is another area where you may need outside help to work on these together. But addressing these issues, it's really critical, and it's going to pave the way for all of the other suggestions that we're going to offer for both enhancing closeness and happiness in your relationship. It may not seem at the moment that these things are incredibly important, but they do build up over time, and they do slowly decrease your quality of life until you really just spend a whole lot of time avoiding each other. Either avoiding each other or engaging in negative patterns. And probably, most importantly, most simply, be honest but not cruel. And when we say not cruel, we all know that there are some questions which should not be answered or that should be answered delicately. I mean, when women ask you, "Does my butt look fat in these pants?" <laughs> you know. Well, this, this is something that I'm particularly bad about. I saw a cartoon once that was a Sleeping Beauty takeoff. The Wicked Witch looked into the mirror and said, "Who's the fairest of them all?" And the mirror came back and said, "You want truth or lip service?" In some cases, lip service is in fact better. It, it pays to be kind. It does pay to remember that this is a sensitive human being you care about, and that well, yes, honesty is one of the most important things. You'll hear Rob and I harp on that repeatedly. We value honesty very highly. Yet there are some situations where it's a little bit better to be kind. And along these lines is the topic of filters. A filter is something that you employ to sort of modify your perspective or to limit the information that you share. Now we all have this ongoing dialogue in our heads. So you're sitting in the coffee shop with your girlfriend, and you see this totally hot woman walk by, and you think, "Wow, I wonder what she's like in bed." That was the inside the head voice. That was the inside the head voice, and a filter that you have with your girlfriend means that you don't have to share this information with her if it will make her feel insecure, uncomfortable. If, on the other hand, she would also find the chick hot, then by all means, hey, two o'clock, hot chick. You know, that's okay. But you have to use judgment about which things would upset your partner, and with those things, either keep it to the inside voice or share it in such a way so as not to heighten the other person's insecurity. So that's the topic of filters. That's the topic of be honest but not cruel. So the next big topic: maintenance. Maintenance is the work and effort of maintaining and building or growing the relationship, or maintaining the connection and happiness the two of you share. It's a broad category of activities that you may have actually been performing before you reach the hump, but once you reach the hump, it takes a little bit more effort. Now, the thing about maintenance is that when we stop maintaining the relationship, the ma- the relationship between the two people does start to worsen as we feel less important and special in the other person's eyes. So often, a drop in maintenance perpetuates itself because of the feedback loop that develops between the two people. You stop maintaining me, I'm going to get pissed off and stop maintaining you. And eventually, it just degrades to the point that you just don't care about the relationship, and neither do they. And then, really bad things happen. So much of maintenance is just doing little things with and for the other person, and we are going to provide a lot of examples. We tried to think of examples that would fit every budget, every taste, every circumstance. And oh yes, you're getting them all because you may not go out on the forum, so we have to say them all here. Often the benefit of doing a few little things will go quite far in compensating for a period of not doing them, so you can, to a certain extent, undo some damage. But this is not an excuse for taking a vacation from maintenance. No, but it is. It is somewhat heartening to know that even if these are things you have not been doing all along in your relationship, you can start doing them now and sort of catch up at least a little. Right. If you don't do the maintenance on a regular basis, it causes a bouncing effect where eventually the person stops believing that the maintenance is sincere. So do it on a regular basis. It's important. The other thing to remember about maintenance is that this is to show the other person that you care about them and that you're thinking about them. So the maintenance activities that you engage in should make the other person happy. Should make them feel special. This is not about you. That's right. No buying them gifts so you can use them. So here is the long list, <laughs> off well, the top of our heads, no less. Y'all ready for this? Here we go. Calling them just to tell them that you love them. Crawling under the desk and kissing their ankles. Leaving little sticky notes all over their office with some little endearment. Write them a poem or love letter, classical but still effective. Leaving a note or card on their pillow or in their car. Find an item that they've put off purchasing themselves, like sweater, perfume, scarf. Cool geek toy, whatever. Purchase it, wrap it, and give it to them just because. The optimal target for gifts like this are things that are maybe just a little bit too expensive, or maybe just a little bit too frivolous for them to actually want to purchase for themselves. Another one is making them their favorite meal or dessert. Dessert, even if it's you. 
or even if it's dessert served on you. Serving a candlelight dinner is always nice. Or giving them a flower or a plant if they don't like being given dead things, which cut flowers are. Helping them clean the house. It's absolutely amazing the effect that them coming home to a clean house when they weren't expecting it has. Absolutely. And if you have kids, taking the kids off of their hands for an hour or several. Giving them a romantic sponge bath. That also has other benefits. Yes, it does. Buying them a book that they enjoy. Going out and doing one of their favorite activities with them, like gaming or walking or biking, that type of thing, or hiking. Helping them act out a sexual fantasy or answering the door wearing nothing but a saran wrap bikini. Taking them out on a date. Actual formal date. Ask them nicely. Take them to dinner in a movie. Giving them a manicure or pedicure. Giving them a massage, sexual or non-sexual. If you're not usually the sexual initiator, and this is probably for you girls out there, try initiating sex. And you can do this in a number of creative ways. You can dress up in lingerie or dress up in nothing but heels or tell him, hey, I want your body. Whatever you do, make sure that you plan to hit him over the head with a brick if absolutely necessary because some guys just don't notice. Well, and if he's not used to you initiating, he just may be floored and not believe that that's what you're doing. Very true. Dress especially nicely for them when you two are going somewhere. Another one is complimenting them, but it has to be a sincere compliment, and this works best if you're not normally in the habit of complimenting them. Compliment them in front of someone else so you can share your appreciation with other people and possibly improve their opinion of them. Taking a walk with them, especially while holding hands. Sunsets are wonderful for that, unless of course there's a lot of mosquitoes out. Role-playing with them in public as if you're two different people who have just met or maybe have known each other but aren't in a relationship. Rob and I used to have this stalking game we played at the goth clubs. Actually, it was mostly Rob stalking me at the goth clubs. Well, yeah. So it was sort of fun. We pretended that we didn't know each other, and, and he would sneak around the bar stalking me. Anyway, it, it sounds very sick and twisted, but it was actually very cute and sweet. Reading to each other is a good way to encourage closeness. As is watching a movie together. Or walking a dog together. Sure. And another one is taking them to the place either that you first met or where you had your first date. Try to sort of relive that memory together. Alternately, you can purchase a small gift similar to something that you purchased them when you were first dating. If it was something really special, maybe find it, clean it, set it out. Yeah, it's a great idea. You could send them silly or loving IMs in the middle of the day for no particular reason. We're really notorious for this. (laughs) I've got people in my office, we're chatting about something, suddenly big smooches come up on IM. <laughs> so, that's a lot of ideas. We invite you to send in yours. We, as we said, we tried to cover every budget, every realm, every interest. Hopefully there's at least one idea in there that you can use or that will give you other ideas. Personalize it again to your partner. This has to be special for them. It has to be something that they will appreciate also. Remember that going jogging with your partner may not be a really good idea because if you can't keep up with them, you're just really holding them back, and that prevents them from enjoying themselves. So don't pick things that are going to act as a stumbling block. And now we mentioned that you need to engage in maintenance continuously throughout a relationship, but really, how often do you need to perform these activities? A variable pattern is very important for this, because if you do it with too regular a pattern, then the person starts to build expectations of it, the surprise factor just goes away, and they stop appreciating it. It becomes just something they expect. They start to develop, yes, expectation instead of appreciation and surprise. Now, the good thing about variability is that for those of us who are date-challenged, it's easy. (laughs) Right. You don't have to remember the date that you got married. You don't have to remember that her favorite day is March 3rd. You don't have to remember any of this because it's entirely variable. On the other hand, you do need to remember to do this. Right. Schedule a time in your calendar to remind yourself if you have to. Set your watch to go off. Whatever. Write some algorithm where, first of all, you take all of the important days in the calendar, February 14th, and whatever holidays she celebrates, and her birthday, and remove all those, take all the other days, and randomly pick. Absolutely. If necessary, send yourself emails to remind yourself. Or Rob had a great idea about this. Oh, yes. If you're a role-playing gamer. As an ex-gamer, I figured you can make yourself a wandering monster or um, random appreciation chart. Lay out 20 little appreciations in a chart, roll a d20, there you go. 
Whatever it says, number seven, send her flowers. That's what you do that day. If you roll a critical hit, maybe it's something really special. If you roll a one, maybe you take the day off. But remember that you need to rotate in some new maintenance activities from time to time because you need variability in the activities in addition to variability in the schedule. Right. And do it smart. Don't try and give her a sensual massage two days in a row. And also, this doesn't have to make you go broke. I mean, many of the suggestions that we made cost you nothing but a little bit of time and a little bit of effort. So the next big one is... Establish and perpetuate mutual interests. Over time, as our focus moves away from learning about our partner, we have a tendency to focus on our own life interests, milestones, goals, whatever. In some cases, these don't necessarily involve the other person. If we decide to pursue the things that don't interest our partner and we don't include them in it, then we risk drifting away from them in a manner that can result in a permanent rift in the relationship. And conversely, it's very important to learn about and stay involved with those things that your partner considers important. So you have to support the other person in pursuing their interests, ideas, goals, and milestones in life. You should always be on your partner's side as you face the world together, and they should know and trust that you will support them and what they're trying to accomplish in life, even if it's stuff that you don't want to do. You must do this even if the other person's interests don't interest you. I can't emphasize this enough. You have to support them. And failing to do this can breed resentment and even open hostility should you become a boat anchor, perpetually holding the person down from whatever it is they want to do. Now, this can be done at varying levels. If you're unable or simply don't want to engage in some activity, such as a physical activity that you're just not capable of, you can maintain the interest with them by learning about it, asking them questions, or engaging as a spectator. So first of all, you need to identify and communicate things that you both consider important. And this allows you to take up activities and projects that you can both take part in. Now, a couple episodes ago, I talked about scales of superiority, and that can be used as a shortcut for this. You can identify yours and your partner's scales of superiority by watching the things that you compliment other people about, whether it's people you know or people you don't know. These are the things that you consider important and would like to improve in yourself. If you can find matching scales of superiority, then they'll suggest activities that both of you would enjoy doing. Next is that if you have an interest the other person simply does not share with you, and you cannot engage them to share this interest with you, so let's say it's gaming or it's running marathons or training your dog, what you have to do with this activity is make an effort to engage in it at a time that doesn't interfere with your together time with the other person. Now this isn't always possible, but when it is, you really have to make this effort. Basically what you're trying to do is prevent your activity from becoming a point of resentment with the other person, both your activity and your involvement in it with them. In other words, don't let your interests neglect or drive away your partner. Try to engage in them at a time when your partner's doing other things. Now all of this is less important with minor interests. For instance, keeping up with all the latest colors that come in once a month at Ulta. You can probably get away with that without bothering to include the other person. But it's absolutely critical for major interests or seriously life-affecting interests. Buying a house, moving to a different city, running for public office, earning a degree, building or changing a career, breeding dogs, traveling all over Europe, having children, all of these things. You get the idea. Yeah. All of these things, if you're going to do them, you've got to include the other person. And they have to find a way to be involved with you. Otherwise, you risk alienation and you risk a rift between you. All of that said, you need to put your relationship first. You are now a couple. You are in this relationship together. But you can't sacrifice your most important goals, if at all possible. And again, conversely, do not make the other person sacrifice their most important goals. You'll wind up with a very miserable mate if you do that. And while we're on the topic of mutual interests, something that you can do at any point in a relationship to help build closeness is to start projects together. This could be small projects, this could be, let's plant a garden together, or this could be a little bit bigger, hey, let's start podcasting together. Yeah. I don't know, who would do that? I don't know. Or it could be, hey, let's go volunteer to help run a science fiction convention together. Or let's volunteer for a political cause. It could be so many things. There are so many areas in which you can start a project together of small scale, large scale, long term, short term, that it would be actually difficult to not find something that the two of you can agree is important enough to work on it together. One word of caution in this, raising children is a project that you can do together. But under no circumstances should you have children so that you can hold the relationship together. No, no. 
And in fact, get a dog first. Get yeah. a dog first. Yeah. I am hugely one of those proponents of start small, start with a dog. Dogs <laughs> are less affected by divorce. Anyway, you get the idea. Starting a project together can be an amazing way to build a relationship. I would like to offer one other caveat, and it's that it can be very difficult to start a project together when one person knows everything about it and the other person knows nothing. Because in that case, unless the person who knows everything is a very good teacher and very patient and the other person is very secure in learning something, you can end up with a competitive situation. If one of you is an expert, then maybe you try a different variation. And this is what we did with martial arts. Rob has lots of martial arts experience. I had none. And when we took up a martial art, we took up Kenpo, which neither of us had ever done. And Rob has maintained my pace, even though he knows a lot more than I do. But that lets us continue to learn together. As a little bit of background, most of the martial arts that I know are soft forms. Kenpo is more of a hard form. So it's pretty much something new for me also. So, enough on maintenance. There's never enough on maintenance, but that's all we'll say about maintenance today. We'd like to move to engaging in active listening, something that will be important again to all of your relationships. Absolutely. If you're new to the concept of active listening, you may wish to Google it and find out a little bit more than what we have to offer here. Active listening can vastly improve all of your relationships and improve the way you're viewed by those around you. Active listening is particularly well used during an important discussion or during an argument. And in a nutshell, active listening means that you listen with your whole person, your body, and your mind to what the other person is saying. So we'll give you a couple of do's and then a couple of do nots. But the do's, first of all, you need to lean forward or towards the other person where they're saying something very important and look at them while they're speaking to you. Make eye contact. That body language thing is absolutely important. If you don't look like you're listening to the other person, it doesn't matter if you're catching every word. They're not going to think you're listening to them. If you're slumped, you have your back to them, you look half asleep, they will not feel important. They will not feel that you're listening. Right. Allow the other person to finish their statements before you begin speaking. They really like this. Summarize or paraphrase what the other person said back to them, just to make sure you understood them correctly. And this is really important in an argument. You want to be sure that you understood what the person is saying. And often, repeating what they said, and hey, tech support people, I bet you recognize this one. Repeating it back to them to make sure you understand often helps to diffuse a situation as well. Continue listening until the issue is thoroughly discussed or resolved. And that can be tough. Sometimes you have to sort of put it on hold and resume it later, but you have to at least try. And admit it when you've done something wrong and apologize. And apologize. It's not enough just to admit, yep, I was a jerk. Yep, sure was. Enjoyed it too. <laughs> Must apologize. Now, the list of do nots. Don't half listen to the other person, focusing on some other activity like gaming, reading, watching the football game, for example. Bad, bad, bad. Or that bad. really interesting science show. Oh, yeah. Don't engage in closed body posture, like folding your arms across your chest, crossing your legs, turning away from them is really bad. This tells the person that you are not open to what they are saying, and it's subtle, but it's effective. Don't interrupt the other person while they're speaking. And do not, do not, do not be thinking about what you will say next while the other person is speaking. This is one that's really difficult to teach yourself, but it's very important. It's especially difficult when you've already figured out what the person is saying roughly two sentences before they actually finish and you're just waiting for them to get out those last 15 or 20 words. <laughs> spit it out! Spit it out! But it's important. It's very important. And a converse to that, don't ramble on indefinitely. Actually do give the other person an opportunity to actually say what they want to say. Otherwise, they're going to have to interrupt you. We saved the best for last. Oh, yes make a healthy sex life and romantic relationship a priority. It's an important adage in the relationship counseling industry that you can't build a relationship around sex, but lack of it can sure destroy one. Both romance and sex are important parts of a romantic partnership, and without the sex and the romance, you have a friendship, which is nice, but it's a different type of relationship than what we're talking about here. Now, passage of time and age and work and stress and travel and living arrangements and children and blah, 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 are all factors that'll threaten sex and romance. And these factors often deprioritize sex for one or the other partner, if not both. 
is especially true if you allow it to happen. So additional effort is required to keep the mutually agreed upon level of romance and sex alive in your relationship. And note we said mutually agreed upon. Because in most relationships, each person will place a different level of importance on these two factors than the other person. But there is some common ground where the two can meet. Now, over time, interest in sex will wane in a relationship. It's inevitable. So you're not going to be able to maintain the level of sexual interest that you had at the beginning. But if you had a high level of sexual interest and then it drops completely off the charts, this probably indicates a problem and probably won't be acceptable long term to the other person. It's another area where either you need to work out the problem together or you may need to seek professional help. So some steps that we have for keeping the agreed-upon romance and sex alive in your relationship. Schedule. I know scheduling and intimacy just don't really seem to go together, but if you lead a very busy life, you're going to have to wedge it in there somewhere. And it's easier if you actually put it on the calendar and say, okay, this particular time we send the kids off to grandma's and strip down and do it. One of the things that we've found, and we are extremely busy people, you can always find ways to include this in your routine by being creative and by removing what might first appear to be obstacles or that you might be using as excuses. So first of all, if you have children, you need to find time to be intimate with each other while they nap or while they sleep at night, or you find a friend or neighbor who can watch them for a few hours while you have some time alone together. Or they're at school or whatever. Children may seem constant, but there really are times that you can get around them. Yes. And honestly, if you want to have time for intimacy, you both can find time for intimacy. You are not around the children 24-7. I don't care what age they are. Ours are two and four, and we still manage to find time away from the children. Another way to spend some good intimate time together is to shower together in the morning. And you don't necessarily have to have sex. We actually have our best discussions every morning in the shower. We talk about our dreams from the previous night and discuss our plans for the day. And yeah, sure, there's a little wet cuddle time there too. No sex actually occurs in the shower. It's really inconvenient. You can slip and hurt yourself. But nonetheless, we do enjoy our time and it's one of our favorite pieces of closeness during the day. Another good one, as mentioned above, plan a romantic date at home, alone, with candles, a lit fire, warm bath, sensual massage, dessert. A walk outside very late at night. Or just hanging out in your backyard. Music that you enjoy, a romantic movie. Maybe the Kama Sutra to give you some ideas. And this is a good time to roll that D20 and do something special. That's right. You could also have a picnic dinner on a sheet in the middle of the room with all of the lights low or with candlelight. And chocolate ice cream. Most of this can be done inexpensively and helps to create a mood that allows the two of you to focus on each other instead of the rest of the world. Get back some of that focus that you had on each other during that initial phase of your relationship before the hump. And another thing you can do is just get away from everything. Just gaffiate, go camping, stay at a bed and breakfast, something that involves being around nothing that you're normally around except each other. Even if it's within a couple of miles of where you live. You can also have lunch together in a park or a secluded spot or have lunch together at home. So that all said, make dates, make plans, set aside specific times, and keep those dates. Remember that this will only be as important as the priority both of you together set for it. So if sex and romance are important to you, and they should be, because again, that's what differentiates your relationship from a friendship, then prioritize this time together, make dates for it, and keep those dates. And that's about all we have for you today. As always, send us your questions or your comments, and we will be providing links to this section on our forum if you'd like more information. And we'll keep an ear out for you. Thanks for listening. Taking offense is easy. I'm offended by that. See? Almost no effort whatsoever. It's an interesting term because when you take offense, you're really taking an offensive posture against your social opponents, requiring them to apologize and admit their inferiority or defend themselves and risk getting caught backpedaling. The effectiveness of this tactic is dependent upon the culture in which it is performed. If your immediate social group supports that case of being offended, or at least supports the offended person's right to act offended, then it generally results in the offending party's social demotion as a cretin. 
If the group thinks that the offended person is overly sensitive, then said person suffers social demotion as a wet blanket. This is the essence of the culture war. Taking offense as a strategic tactic is entirely dependent upon the audience valuing morality as a scale of superiority. As an audience decides that they value other scales, like efficiency, freedom, and fair treatment, then those who rely upon offense in order to influence their audience begin to lose their power. The standard reaction to this loss of influence is to seek the validation of authority. Since most people can't tell the difference between the illegal and the immoral, giving an idea the backing of prohibition is a very effective method of convincing people that your offense at something is justified. It's much easier to convince a few hundred politicians to be offended by something than it is to convince hundreds of millions of citizens. It follows naturally that the more people a law affects, the stronger the case of moral validity behind the idea. Those seeking to validate their morality through lawmaking will always shoot for the largest body in which the idea can get traction. In essence, offense becomes a self-supporting mechanism for continuing the right to be offended. This is a little like the argument that humans are an idea's method of making new ideas. Offense can't survive in a vacuum, but moral intolerance can. Moral intolerance is a lot like religious intolerance, except that it doesn't require the participants to be of separate religions. In fact, it doesn't require the participants to believe in any religion at all. All it requires is for the offended person to have a belief about how someone should act in or out of public and the conviction that those who don't conform to that belief should be educated as to the error of their ways. People have some rather odd beliefs when it comes to behavior. Prescriptions on dancing, daily rituals, and the existence of neckties are all examples of behavior that have sprung up due to someone's exercise of moral intolerance. It becomes a competition. In order to demonstrate our moral acumen, we go to greater lengths to demonstrate ourselves more worthy than those around us. Anything that someone else abstains from, we can abstain from better. Abstention from butter becomes fasting. Fasting becomes hunger strikes. Humble clothing becomes severe. Severe clothing gives way to hair shirts. This happens in tiny increments, each step being a dare to others to emulate or surpass us. At some point, it becomes offensive to you when others don't even try to play this game. Their lack of effort suggests some meaningless to your endeavors that is intolerable. Thus is the genesis of etiquette and interviewing attire. Offense does occur for other reasons, of course. It happens for good reasons, like when someone says something untrue about you, and for bad reasons, like when someone says something true about you. Next time you're a party to the use of offense, take a good look and ask yourself a few things. Why did it happen? Who won and who lost? What was gained or lost? Did the observers play a part or did they just let it happen? It's amazing what you can learn from offense. Welcome to Intellectual Icebergs. I'm living, breathing proof that a nerd can, in fact, get a hottie girlfriend and maintain her for more than six months. <laughs> that would make me your host, Jim Vance. With us today, we have Robert Raplin again on yet another fascinating topic. Hello. We are talking today about stars. I want to thank James Marshall for his help on this episode. He filled in a few places in my spotty knowledge of this and set me on the right track to find other information. Any mistakes in this are purely mine and have nothing to do with him. And we're not talking Star Wars. We're not talking Star Trek. We're talking the actual big burning balls of gas. No, plasma. Plasma. See, there you go. You're correcting me already. Yeah. Already, I've learned something new. I, I love this. I, this is why I like intellectual icebergs. Okay, so everybody knows what a star is. Obviously, I didn't know it was plasma, so there you go. I'm already corrected. But since it's our custom to define things, and it's a good place to start, let's start by defining what exactly is a star. Well, oddly enough, most people actually do know what a star is which is those big, bright, burning things in the sky. But the thing is that in order to fit that definition, they've wound up sticking a whole bunch of things in there that aren't nearly as similar as they may seem to be. Okay. 
The typical star is a pile of stellar gases, mostly hydrogen, in one place that is massive enough to actually start hydrogen ignition. And that's something around 90 Jupiter masses, 75 to 90 Jupiter masses. Okay, that seems a strikingly large size for my poor, immature little brain. Well, it's still considerably smaller than our sun. Okay. And the hydrogen ignition is basically what defines a main sequence star. In scale of size, those things go from teeny tiny little things, again, red dwarfs, 90 Jupiter masses, to huge, supergiant blue stars, about 150 solar masses. Okay, so you're talking actually the equivalent of the solar system mass when you're talking solar masses. Well, the sun itself. Okay. Now, they also toss in a bunch of other things. Those are just the main sequence stars. But after a star leaves the main sequence, it does weird things that they still call stars like white dwarf and neutron stars and things like that. Now, I do want to specify whenever I talk about burning where stars are concerned, we're not actually doing chemical burning, which is like combining oxygen with carbon. We're actually doing a nuclear fusion. Okay. But burning is a much shorter word. Obviously, and much better use for common everyday people like me. Getting on beyond that, with that in mind, let's talk about something more in detail with the beginning of a star's life cycle. You keep talking about main sequence and everything. What's, what's the life cycle of a star? Stars all start as big clouds of gas. And actually, big clouds of gas are referred to as stellar nurseries because small density pockets in it start accumulating other gas, and eventually it accumulates enough gas that it hits 90 masses of Jupiter, which is enough to make hydrogen start burning into helium. Okay. Previous to this point, it does actually give off some light, but that's caused by incandescence created by the energy of the gravitational collapse. However, once nuclear fusion starts occurring, that nuclear fusion creates a pressure that pushes back out again. For your typical star, gravity's pushing it in, nuclear fusion's pushing it back out again. This prevents it from collapsing any further. Okay. But nuclear fusion is basically when a star enters the main sequence. So main sequence suggests that there are a number of different types. Could you get more specific? Sure. Main sequence stars are all categorized by their size and temperature and heat, which actually winds up being all the same thing. The less mass a star has, the cooler it burns. At the bottom, you have the red dwarfs. At the very top, you have the blue supergiants. The red dwarfs don't burn as quickly either. That old saying that a candle that burns twice as bright burns half as long. So a red dwarf star actually stays in the main sequence for 25 or more billion years, whereas a blue supergiant burns off if everything in maybe a few million. Now, these stars are actually categorized by letters. The tiny ones are M, and then K, and then G, and F, A, B, and O. Now, A and B are near the top because they're blue stars, and they thought that a blue star would be burning cooler than a white star because, well, it has color. What's actually going on is that it gives off more light than a white star, but most of it's just shifted off into the higher end of the spectrum. Okay. Where does the Sol, where does our sun classify in that scale? The sun is actually categorized as a G2 star. The numbers within the letters start at 9 and go down as the star gets more massive, hotter, brighter, whatever. Okay. Now, this puts it at the lower end of stars mass-wise, but since there are considerably more tiny red stars than there are big blue stars, we're actually at above average for size. Is that also true of age, or are we looking at... Well, right now the sun is, I think, 4.6 billion years old. It theoretically has a lifespan of about 9 billion, so we've got a while to go before it leaves the main sequence. Okay, so I don't have anything to worry about anytime in the near future. Nah. Sounds good, other than skin cancer, so. So moving on with that theory, why do the stars leave the main sequence and what happens when they do? Oh, this is fun. Again, main sequence stars are categorized by burning hydrogen. Eventually, they just run out of hydrogen. Nuclear fusion is what keeps a star inflated against gravitational collapse, so when that happens, it starts to collapse. Surprise, surprise. Before too long, though, it actually hits a point where it's starting to convert helium into carbon, okay. which results in the outer edges of the star being expanded out. In this case of the sun, it'll actually expand beyond the orbit of the Earth and become a red giant. Okay. Now, the red giant is actually giving off more light than the original star was, but it's distributed over a much larger surface area, so it looks like a much cooler star. Interesting. Okay. Red giants are also extremely diffuse. They have a density that's much, much thinner than even our atmosphere is. So from our perspective, it's basically a red-hot vacuum. Interesting. Okay. Never heard that before. Eventually, though, it's going to run out of helium. Now, what happens then depends on how much mass the star had in the first place. Okay. For stars 
stars that are under about 15 solar masses, it just can't support itself anymore. It goes under gravitational collapse. Uh, heat and energy are generated from this, but not a whole lot, but just enough to kick off most of its mass, Okay, which produces what's called a planetary nebula. has nothing to do with planets, but they used to think it did, and it leaves behind a tiny fragment, which is about half the mass of the sun, but compressed in an area slightly larger than the Earth, hmm. called a white dwarf. Okay. However, with the leftover heat and gravitational collapse, it's a very, very brightly burning tiny little object that can be seen from Earth, even. And they're so dense that a single tablespoon of this thing would weigh about a ton. Okay. Now, a wife dwarf largely consists of carbon and oxygen, and it only glows because it's incandescent, not because there's any fusion going on. Okay. So eventually, these things will just cool off, radiate all their heat into space, and then become, well, basically a big, huge chunk diamond in the sky called a black dwarf, which is not actually a star at all. It's actually more of a macho, which is a massively compact halo object. Okay, interesting. But since this will take like 100 billion years to occur, none of these are likely to exist. Fascinating. Now, stars over that 15 solar mass limit are actually capable of making carbon and oxygen burn. And these stars will actually climb the periodic table until they reach iron. Now, the thing about iron is that anything you would convert iron into, you wind up getting less energy out of it. You have to put energy into it to get it to become something else. So it just stops and these stars will start forming an iron core. Now, what happens after this takes a tad bit of nuclear physics to actually understand. If you go back to our segment on chemistry, mm -hmm. you remember that matter is basically a nucleus surrounded by a whole bunch of electrons, and each of the electrons has its own personal discrete shell. Right. And if you go back to our segment on small science, Trigfa's bit, you know that these electrons absolutely will not try to go hang out in a shell where another electron exists. Right. They refuse. But what happens is that if you get enough pressure, then it'll actually drive those electrons into the nucleus, and then the electrons and protons will merge together into being a neutron and a neutrino. Neutrino goes off and does its own thing. This results in a substance that is called neutronium by sci-fi buffs, but physicists usually just refer to it as degenerate matter. Now, degenerate matter is yet another state of matter besides the five that we already know of. Okay. Gas, liquid, solid, plasma, Bose-Einstein condensate, and then degenerate matter. Although there's actually a seventh theoretical form of degenerate matter called, I don't know, quarkium or something like that. Because neutrons are actually made out of three quarks. And if you crush neutrons hard enough, theoretically, they ought to collapse into quarks. Now, they have no evidence that this exists anywhere. Okay. But it's theoretically there. You've gone into Carl Sagan territory for me right there, so... Oh, you bet. So when this big ball of iron in the center of the star reaches something called the Chandrasekhar limit, which is about 1.4 solar masses, then it exerts a pressure on the atoms which exceeds the electron degeneracy pressure. And this causes it to collapse into neutronium. This collapse into neutronium causes a huge explosion called a supernova, which a lot of us have heard of. And this throws a heaping pile of the star all across the system it happens to be in and is visible from many, many, many hundreds of light years away. Okay, so going on with, with the concept of a supernova, obviously we've all heard that. It's, it's popular in sci-fi. Is there such a thing as a normal nova? Oh, yeah. Again, remember me talking about white dwarfs? Right. White dwarfs occasionally hang out in a system with other stars in a binary system, and when that other star expands into a red giant, the white dwarf is often close enough that it can suck off a bunch of the red giant's gases. When these gases hit the surface of the white dwarf, it explodes brilliantly into what's called a nova. Interesting. Okay. Not nearly as bright as a supernova, but that's why the supernova is super and the nova isn't. Okay. Now, an interesting thing, if enough of the red giant's gases wind up on the white dwarf for it to hit the Chandrasekhar limit, then it'll explode into a supernova. So you can take something from a white dwarf to a supernova. You can, you can make a white dwarf go supernova by dropping enough mass onto it to make it exceed the Chandrasekhar limit. Yes. That's interesting. I've never heard of that before either. Yeah. Now, when that happens, usually the white dwarf just totally blows itself out of existence and nothing's left. Okay. And on that vein of thought, what happens when a star does go supernova? What What's the next, the net result of that? Well, the net result of that is a big cloud and a neutron star. Now, neutron stars, you remember me telling you how incredibly dense a white dwarf was? Right. That's a puff of vacuous gas by comparison to a neutron star. Okay. 
This is a mass roughly the size of our sun squashed down to be about nine miles across. Okay. Now, the reason that they originally figured these things out was they could see these pulses called pulsars right. out in the space that were pulsing at an extremely rapid rate. They figured out that the only way that anything could be spinning this fast is if it was no more than nine miles across. Otherwise, the surface would be exceeding the speed of light. So it's actually spinning rather than just pulsating. Correct. Interesting. Okay. They actually spit out electromagnetic radiation that spans a huge swath, and there are actually visible light pulsars out there. Okay. Now, don't these things also have, wouldn't they have a tremendous gravimetric pull if they're that dense? That's the other thing about pulsars, is that they have to be that dense in order to hold the thing together while it's spinning that fast. Okay. So what happens if you have something tremendously large? What's the next step okay. if you get... If you're larger than, say, 30 solar masses, then you get the exact same effect, but there's so much mass that it actually winds up collapsing into a black hole. Okay. Now, black holes, they call them gravitars and various things, but they're not technically stars because they don't give off any form of radiation. They give off nothing. They give off nothing whatsoever. Which I'm sure would be a far and deep, deep conversation. Oh, yes. There's some really interesting things that can be said about black holes. I mean, for one thing, they're suspecting that black holes are actually just a shell and that nothing can actually get into that shell. So there's no matter actually inside of the black hole, but it's not like you would notice from the outside. Right. Which, which that, the event horizon concept, all that is just fascinating to me, but I'm sure far too deep of a conversation for this segment anyway. Probably, and we've, we've been trying to keep the segment length down anyway. So there you go. Sounds like a good point to break off and look forward to black holes, event horizons, alternative universes, blah, blah, blah. Oh, sure. Sounds like a plan. Thanks much, Rob. Thank you, Jim. Welcome to The Chatter. This is Tiffany. And this is Rob. And if you're not interested in hearing about our information about the podcast and some upcoming information we have for you, then skip to the next podcast now. That's right. Go away. We need to profusely apologize for taking a whole month to get the show out. Five weeks. Five weeks. Uh, we are so bad. But we had a damn fine party. Yes, we did. Yes, we did. Life intervened and... And my job was hell. And my job's going away. <laughs> I'm looking for a new job. But we're back with a new episode, as you've heard. So we hope you enjoyed it. And our podcasting schedule should become more regular now. So April will probably be like this for us every year. Probably. In case any of you missed it, the last episode was the April 1st episode, which was, in fact, an April Fool's joke. We are not crazy. We don't think that crazy cat ladies are taking over the world. Nor do we think that there's some weird secret society who's out to make all people kill themselves in stupid manners as early as possible. Nor would we condone such activities if, in fact, we did know that they existed. And nor do we think that pens spontaneously vanish when you're not paying attention to them. Well, at least not outside our house. Right. We actually did get a few comments from people who wrote in and said, um, that was a joke, wasn't it? And to all those people, yes, it was a joke. It was a joke. In fact, we'll be recording a disclaimer, probably right after this, stating that that is an April Fool's Day joke and not to take it seriously. In other topics, we have a brain song. We do. Oh my gosh, we have an awesome brain song, as you're hearing right now, if we mix this properly. This is from our friend Aaron Geis of Blind With Rain. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Aaron. And also his friend, Sherry Arnett, who did the vocals. So, awesome. We love it. We love our brain song. Thank you for your brain song. And in the vein of the brain song... People to whom we sent brains. We sent a brain to Gregor in Austria. That's the first brain we've sent to Austria. Yay, another country. We also sent one to Aaron Geis, as we just mentioned, our brain guy. And to Michael in California. We also sent one to Ben in Somerset. He's with the study center at Yeovil College. And they've asked if they can link to us from their site, which we're delighted. And we also sent one to Brandon in Kentucky. And I am not certain, but I believe that's our first brain going to Kentucky. And shows once again that people in the South love Entice. As a side note, we ran into Steve Holtquist online, and he should be back sometime soon for another episode, as soon as we can catch up with his schedule and our schedule, and you know how that goes. And about that geek dating segment that we just did, that segment was really tough. It was a lot of fun, but it was really tough because there was so much information. As you noticed, it was much longer to begin with. We edited quite a bit out. Oh, yeah. 
And of course, I will be adding links to the website, links on active listening and also links on fair fighting practices. And I'm not sure what else yet, but I will be providing links out on the forum. So if you'd like more information, be sure to check us out there. And I will also be returning to those earlier steps within geek dating in a future segment of the show, although not next show. Next show, I plan on doing a piece on online consensus building. I'm sure many of you have spent many a wee hour of the morning trying to convince somebody online that your point of view is the only one that's worth having, and if so, you'll find my segment to be quite interesting. I also submitted to speak on that topic at the Wikimania conference in Cambridge, Massachusetts in August of this year. I'm still waiting to hear back from them, so it's possible. And I won't be speaking anywhere but here, but I will be speaking about online communities. And I've been digging up all kinds of information on developing and nurturing online communities communities and relationships of a variety of types and I have some very interesting information to share with you. And that should go very well with Rob's online consensus building topic. We have a lot of other great suggestions that have been plugged into the forum including one posted by Suki Trebek, I hope I pronounced that correctly, by Noral Beats, Lucid Dreaming and Sleep in General. That's a topic that has fascinated Tiffany and I for a long time, so we'll probably come up with something on that fairly soon. Just need to dig up some subject matter experts first. And that's basically it for the chatter of this month. This is Rob. And this is Tiffany. And we'll be seeing you next time. Intellectual Icebergs is produced by Robert and Tiffany Rapplin. If you enjoy our show, please vote for us on Podcast Alley and Digital Podcast. Music for the intro and credits is Speaking in Electronic Tongues by Synthetic Movements. Music for the first segment is Extension by The Soundmen. Music for the interlude is Staring Without Eyes by The Deadly Kind. Music for the second segment is Biomorph by Chris Harvey, an artist you can hear on Magnatune. Music for the chatter is Pocket Orchestra Energy by Synthetic Movements. The Brains song is Brains by Aaron Geis and Sherry Arnett. The makers of Intellectual Icebergs would like to remind you that when you most think you're the only one on the road is when you're most likely to be wrong. Please visit us at www.intellectualicebergs.org. Intellectual Icebergs is released under a Creative Commons license and is an Ankh Infinity production.